It's August 13th, 2020, and you're listening to the Architecture Geeks podcast. I'm Larry. And I'm Matthew. And we're your friendly neighborhood architects being geeky as we want to be. Welcome back, everyone. We hope you are enjoying your summer. If you're here in Texas, you're probably sweating like a pig the way we are. Thank God for air conditioning. Once again, we have a guest with us, so we're going to shorten up the intro here and just sort of dive right off into things. Our guest today is Hunter Dane, and Hunter, say hi. Hey, guys. So there's Hunter, and he is, I was going to say he's a realtor, but I think there's, well, I know there's a lot more to it than that, so I'm not even going to try. So so I'm going to let Hunter sort of explain what he does and and because it's a lot. Thanks. Well, so, you know, I technically I'm a real estate broker. I've got realtors that work for me, but I, you know, I'm a realtor as well, but my background is in uh, new home construction. So I've spent the last 18 years of my career starting off working for production builders uh, like Goodman Homes, which is now Cave of Nanian Homes, the Shattuck family, and then um, went on to work for some really high-end custom builders in the Dallas and Park Cities area, to then uh, going out on my own and starting my own real estate brokerage that about 50% of my business is working with builders and developers on uh, developing residential projects. Um, and then I work with a lot of individuals to, that want to build and then just a lot of just regular run-of-the-mill selling, buying, selling pre-owned homes. And kind of done a little bit of everything. Yeah, that sounds like you've done a lot. So <laughs> whenever I talk to someone, someone that, you know, there's a lot of things going on, I'm like, oh my God, what am I doing with my life? I say that all the time. I like, I sit there and go, what am I doing with my life? Like I, I, I get up in the morning and like, I feel like I'm running and sprinting all day. And then at eight o'clock, I'm like, I haven't had anything to eat today. What am I doing with my life? Well, we'll try not to keep you too long, but we do have a number of questions we want to talk to you about. And I'm going to start off with the first one here because, you know, we, we, as architects, we tend to have, I think, a lot of realtor friends and we, we've been hearing from a number of them that the market is still good. The market's still busy. And even in my neighborhood, we are still seeing homes go up and go off the market really quick. So with everything that's been going on with the with the pandemic starting and all the COVID-19 mess and people being locked inside, why does it seem like the real estate market is still doing so well, particularly here in Dallas? You know, because of course that's our, our neck of the woods, but you don't hear about this real slowdown in the real estate market necessarily. Yeah, 2020 will definitely go down in the record books. It's probably the strangest year I've ever experienced. It's it's just it's odd, you know. The beginning of the year started off gangbusters, right? January and February were uh, huge months for us. Um, and, and honestly, 2019 and the high in the luxury market was seeing a slowdown. We were we were preparing for the luxury market to taper off. We had a huge boost in January, February, and then COVID hit. In like March and April, we were just trying to we were praying that we could close the stuff that we had in the books, but we weren't. We weren't even allowed to show houses. We were trying to do virtual showings, 3D Matterport tours, but basically we had almost no new contracts coming in the door March and April. And then 
May 1st rolled around and Texas started opening back up and our phones started ringing off the hook. And by the end of July, our brokerage had already closed more in 2020 than we had in all of 2019. And that's and we basically did very little in March and April. So it's been, um, it's, it's, it's no joke. It has been a crazy busy May, June, and July. You've got a few things going on. All the people that should have been buying in March and April, you know, they got pushed into the summer because everyone was scared to go see houses, you know? Um, and then on top of that, interest rates have been crammed down to like nothing. You know, I'm, I'm buying a house for myself right now and I got locked in at 2.5% on a 30 year fixed. And I just had a client tell me, oh man, you didn't get that good of a rate. I just got 2.25. I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? Like, like that's insane. And that's even, that's, that's better than the rate that we got for our house in the, and in, in, right at the end of the, the 2008 crash. Yeah. It's, I mean, this is the, I've never, I mean, 18 years of doing this and I say 18, that's 18 years of doing this full time. I started buying real estate. My first property that I bought, I was 19. I bought down in Lakewood, a duplex on Richmond Avenue. And, you know, I mean, so when you think of, I bought that one in 1998. You know, since 1998, this is bar none, the best interest rates I've ever seen. And, you know, the economy is not great. I'm not going to sit here and blow smoke that, oh, everything's fixed in the economy. Like, there's a lot of glaring problems our economy in my opinion i'm not a professional economist but i can tell you this homes make people feel safe right and people that have money in their home unlike the stock market it's a security blanket you know your money is kind of protected you live in your home you always feel like your home's at least going to have value and most people believe their home is going to go up in value and while everybody was trapped inside during covid they started realizing all the deficiencies their home has if they're stuck inside for a prolonged period of time. So when things opened up and interest rates dropped down, people were like, man, if I'm ever going to make a change, now's the time to do it. You know, so it's a weird dynamic of factors at play, but not, not everything's going gangbusters. You know, we have a $200,000 condo listed in, um, in a, in a building in you know kind of the downtown Dallas area that three months ago, there was only one unit for sale in the building. Now there's six units for sale and none of them are selling, you know? So you've got a, some of your high density, very urban areas are still suffering a little. Now Dallas is better off than New York and, you know, some of these other areas that are kind of hot spots. Yeah. So, so I, I'm not surprised about the, the higher density stuff, you know, people, I think, you know, probably don't want to be around people. So I can see them leaving, but I guess, yeah, if, if you don't want to be around people moving into a high rise, isn't necessarily going to be the best thing. And, and we're seeing it too. I mean, so you're talking about the people who've been sitting around looking at their houses for months and realize, realizing all the deficiencies. I mean, I, I had very little new stuff happening in March and, um, I guess March mostly, 
but then April hit and then May hit. And suddenly, I mean, I think I've got nine projects on the books for books for this year and, you know, not all big stuff, but nine, nine different projects within, you know, that popped up within three months. And so I, I think it very much is that people are tired of looking at their houses or they're figuring out that now that they're working from home, they don't have the room that they really need. Yeah. There's a big trend in remodeling right now. There's a big trend in buying different houses. Like everybody's got a, a, a new perspective on what their priorities are and what space they need and don't need. I mean, if you've got anybody, any friends that are in the pool business, call them up and ask them how busy they are. You can't even get a pool started for two months, no matter what you're willing to pay for it right now. Because everybody that has kids is like, I need a pool because my kids are driving me crazy being stuck inside the house all the time. Yeah, I can, I can imagine that. <laughs> I can say I, I can second that. Uh, having having two one and a half year old twins, I feel like having a pool w- would be a a huge luxury right now. <laughs> well, well, and if nothing else, you could st- you could leave them inside and you could go lay out by the pool. Oh yeah, there you go. That sounds nice. So guys, I have four kids, and they've been. We started heating our pool in March because like when we because we came back from spring break and they just never went back to school. And my pool has been 90 degrees since the first week of March because I've been making my kids have been swimming in my pool every single day since the beginning of March. You know, I mean, in the beginning, people didn't know like if it was even safe to go like walk around outside around other people. I remember going to Arbor Hills Nature Preserve and walking around there and like people were like getting off the sidewalk and like walking six feet into the grass, even with masks on to stay away from me. I'm like, you guys are crazy, but maybe, maybe I'm crazy. Maybe I need to like walk six feet on the other side of the grass. Like there was just, nobody knew what the hell to do. Well, and you, and you mentioned, so you mentioned a little bit about people's priorities and uh, I thought that'd be a good segue into our next question because as architects, Larry and I are mainly involved with the design and construction portions of a building's life cycle. You're a realtor and you've worked with builders and developers, and I feel like their priorities are, are more on the, 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 the fast pace and the money side of, of that industry. And many architects also see the investment side of the construction equation as, as the, the building by spreadsheet. And and what I'm generally referring to is when a client comes to us saying, oh, based on this lot size and the city zoning and the building needs to be this big and all the rooms need to be this big, this is what I need. And what the client is really doing is reading from an Excel spreadsheet that the finance people prepared, reducing the project to four walls and the amount of money you can make by maximizing your square foot calcs. Don't get me wrong. I, I like money. <laughs> I want everybody to make money on the projects I'm involved in. But there's more to building than just the four walls and the money you can make constructing that. And I feel like as the, on the realtor side of things, you get that. You know, People enjoy natural light, good views, open green spaces. And I imagine it's easier to sell a building from a realtor's perspective by advertising those qualities rather than by quoting a builder's spreadsheet on how much money they're going to make from the sell of the project. So it seems to me like 
you're at the perfect intersection between the money side of the things and the people side of things. So in your work, how do you balance the priority to maximize your profits as an investor, but also constructing something that you can sell quickly as a realtor? And let me tell you guys, that is probably the hardest thing that I deal with. I see myself as kind of like the the head coach or the guide through this, right? And we've got a team. You know, the architects are part of the team. The interior designers are part of the team. The builders part of the team. The clients part of the team. I basically, I tell people I work like a consultant and I get paid like a realtor. A lot of times I begin with the client before they ever buy the lot, before they ever meet with the architect or the builder or anything. And I say, okay, what's your vision? What do you, what, when this is all done, what does it look like? You know, what does your life look like? What, you know, what does the house look like? What are you trying to accomplish? So first I'm trying to understand really what it is that they're after, right? And we go, and I go show them new houses. I go show them old houses. I try to get a feel for what brings them joy, what they respond to when they walk through houses. I look through that and I go, okay, I know now I understand kind of structurally what they're looking for. And I also, you know, I kind of guide them I'm like, hey, look, you know, your tastes are leaning along these lines. Here's why you like, you really seem to respond and like these big sliding door units. You like steel windows. You like this, you like that, you, you know, and I tell them like, look, if you want, I don't care. I don't care if your budget's 500,000, $5 million, whatever. Everybody wants the perfect house, the perfect location, the perfect price, you know, or they want it built fast, cheap, and good. And it doesn't matter. You can only have two out of three, right? Nobody ever gets a three out of three, you know? So it's like, what's most important? Do you want it? Do you want it built fast and good? Well, then it's not going to be cheap. You know, do you want it good and cheap? Well, then it's not going to be fast, you know? And just bringing their expectations to within reality. And then once I understand what they're really going for and making sure they have a realistic budget, someone may say, oh yeah, I want 10,000 square feet. I want all steel windows. I want pure and beam. I want it, you know, I want Baccarat chandeliers and blah, blah, blah. And I want to build it for a hundred bucks a foot. Well, guess what? That ain't going to happen. Good news is we can scratch this project right now, or we can start talking about what a realistic budget is for what you want. And so you have you try to have these expectations and budget conversations on the front end. So then when we go to the architect and we go to the builder, it's not a big battle, right? We can go in and we can bring our pictures, our mood pictures, and everything else, and we show it to the architect, and we can say, hey, look. We bought this one acre lot in Labello Estates, and we're wanting something between six and eight thousand square feet. Here's the sort of vibe. Here's the pictures that we like. Here's some of the styles. Uh, here's what's important to us. My kid plays the banjo or whatever, and my little Susie likes to play soccer. Whatever it is, to me, architecture is art engine and engineering combined. Right. So you got to let the artistic person go and do their thing and come up with something that's beautiful and bring it back. And then we can start talking about what tweaks we need to make 
to make it work with their living situation and stuff like that. The, the worst mistake a client can have is go in on the front end and tell the architect, hey, I need this size of room. I need this. No, we just need the architect in the beginning to capture, to understand kind of the vibe and the vision and the end goal. And then let the architect do what they do, bring it back. And then we're going to all work as a team to refine it to where it becomes what everyone, where everyone, the architect, the designer, the builder, and the client all go, yep, that's it. That's what we want, you know? And so that's kind of long-winded way of saying that it, no one person should be driving the entire process. <laughs> Matthew, is that the answer you were thinking? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, it, I, it was definitely, it was, it was definitely very, very gracious towards us architects. I, I, I will say that. <laughs> That, now that's not what normally actually happens, though. You know, I'm not I'm not telling you that, especially when you're talking about like a builder spec house, a builder and developer, they come in and they're like, "Hey, we need to build a cheap big box so we can maximize return." And I just tell them, "It's like as long as you're comfortable moving into that box and paying for it yourself, great." But you know, residential real estate is driven by feeling. It is you know, emo it's driven by emotion not driven by logic and so if you want a big box nobody's going to like it you know so let's design something that people will walk in and say man this feels awesome and and yeah and so how how can if, if you're talking to a room full of architects how how can you communicate or how, how how can architects get the people on the investor and the money side of things to put a monetary value on things like courtyards and windows, trees and green spaces, and not just putting up those four walls and maximizing the building size at the expense of other things that would enhance your user experience. So some of it's going to be trust and experience, right? So like if a builder, it's going to be really hard if a builder's never worked with you or some of the developers never worked with you before. So finding pictures, you know, through house and Pinterest and stuff like Here's what you're telling. Here's what I hear you telling me that you want me to design. And you show them a picture of a cheap ass box, right? Or whatever it is, right? Then you say, what I'd like to, what I'm visualizing is this. You show them a picture of something that's obviously prettier with a bigger window and something, and, you know, and you just, you have to work towards a common middle ground, right? Like the architect, you, can, you know, architects, some architects, like to just draw the prettiest thing possible, right? But, you know, I, I am really, one of my close childhood friends and next door neighbor, his dad is one of the most well-known architects in Dallas. And he designs amazing houses, some of the most beautiful elevations you've ever seen, a lot of big houses. But he's told me kind of offhand, 25% uh, of the houses I've drawn never got built. To me, a lot of times when I see a house get drawn that doesn't get built, what happens is this architect captures the vision of the client and draws this house that they fall in love with, but then it gets bid out by the builder and it's a million dollars over budget and the people throw their hands up in defeat and just say, well, we're just going to go buy an existing house, you know, or they have to start the project over from scratch and redesign it. So there's Good communication and setting expectations on the front end. Hey, look, 
good design costs some money. Here's some pictures of what good design looks like. And we, in our experience, these designs have come in at this sort of price point. If that doesn't work for you, let's show you, like I like to take people through houses. Here's what $150 a foot of construction, not counting the land, gets you. This is what it feels like. Here's what $175 a foot feels like. Here's what $200 a foot looks like, $225, $250, $300. And you walk through them, these different houses, and then they start to get it. They're like, oh, yeah, I get it. Man, that house felt amazing. But you're like, well, that house was $250 a foot. You know, we can, we can get this for you. You have to realize this feeling comes at a higher price than $150 a foot. Yeah, we, we try to always tell clients, give them a sort of ballpark that, you know, for, for new construction or for renovation, we're like, okay, you're going to pay about this much per square foot just to give them a sense of what, what things are going to be. And so often they are, I'm working with a client right now who has convinced themselves they need to add 900 square feet to their house. I'm like, that's your entire budget. That's essentially your entire budget before you ever renovate any other part of the house. But I can't, <laughs> I can't move them off of that. They just seem to be stuck on that number. So in spite of me telling them what the construction cost is going to probably be per square foot, they're just still plowing ahead and it, it's making me crazy. It's like I can't get them to grasp onto the idea of you want to do this and this is what you're really going to have to pay for it. Um, so they're, they're just getting ready to start, start talking to contractors. And I am hoping once they do, they'll start the, the reality will finally start to hit them. Yeah. Having a builder or somebody involved in the front end that will also say, yes, you know, your 900 square foot addition is going to be $150 a foot for that. And so 900, that's going to cost you 125 or $130,000, depending on the finish out, it could be 200 bucks a foot, you know, but if they won't listen to you, well, Hey, you can lead a horse to water. And if it dies of thirst, cause it decides not to stick its head down and drink, that's not your fault. You know, I mean, yeah, it, it yeah, there's, there's people, some people are going to listen and some people aren't, but if you tell the good thing is you will build credibility. If you're telling them, Hey, this 900 but addition that I'm designing for you is going to be about 150 grand. And then it comes in at 150 grand and they're like, Oh my gosh, that's my whole budget. You're like, yeah, I told you a month ago that that was going to be 150,000. And then it was, what do you want to do now? All right. Hopefully business is good because then you get, you, this is going to be a great 900 foot addition. And then you need another 150 grand to remodel the rest of the house. Yeah, I'm that the the thing that gets me is I don't seem too worried. So I'm like, how much money do you really have that you're not telling me about, which is entirely possible, but but that's a whole other conversation. I know that from from my end I always like to try and get a contractor involved. I mean, we are at schematic design. We finally have a, a good floor plan. We haven't drawn elevations, we haven't really picked a bunch of finishes. I'm like, you need to start talking to a contractor because this is where things need to start happening so you know and we try to do that with each and every client just to get that going on the front end yeah well that's that's one of the things i tell my clients is you've got you've got kind of your budget train you've got your design train 
and they're on two separate tracks heading towards hopefully the same direction, the same point. The goal is as you're working on the, the design, you've also got a contractor or builder or someone else that's involved taking each one of those design uh, additions or, or updates or revisions and laying an actual budget to it so that as you rev revise the design, the budget also gets revised. So as you get closer to the finish line with your design, you're constantly getting closer to the finish line with your budget. And at the end, there shouldn't be big surprises. The, the budget train and the design train should arrive at the same station at the same time. It's like, aha, this all worked. We've constantly made revisions and let's get it done. Yeah, if it, if it only really worked that way a lot of the time. Um, yeah. we, we get close sometime, but not always. So um, we are going to be doing a, our next podcast is going to be talking about choices that people have to make. So, you know, there, there's that, that front end sort of thing when you think about if you're buying a sort of tracked home, generic builder home, you know, you're going to go in and not necessarily have to make a ton of choices because they're going to have different patents, might have different packages and that sort of thing. But for us, we are talking to clients who have to select, I mean, everything, you know, we get into what type of foundation we're going to have, all the finished materials, uh, plumbing fixtures, paint colors. I mean, there's just all these choices that have to be made as a realtor. And, you know, because you said, you mentioned you've, you've flipped homes in the past. What were a few things that sort of guided your decision while you're making, you know, all the decision makings as you're, as you're managing those projects, because these projects like the flip projects were essentially for you to, to turn around and sell back to someone. So, so how did you make decisions about what you were doing within those projects? I, I can say that my decision-making process changed a lot over time. In the beginning, I didn't have a clue. I was like any, anybody off the street who just thought, man, I'm just going to go cheap as possible or whatever. And I'd hired the cheapest trades possible. And I had a lot of projects that I would go back right now and look at and just probably vomit because they were terrible. And the market, the market told me the same. I had some stuff that I did not sell really well in the beginning. And then, you know, as, as I saw what, the, how the market responded, I adjusted. So, you know, for me, I'm a big believer in the first, you've got the working with buyers. I realized the first 60 seconds are the most critical, right? The, the curb appeal, as people are walking up to the house, they come through that front door, they're looking to eliminate you. People, buyers are actually not trying to make stuff work. They walk into houses expecting there to be problems, like with a negative mindset and looking for a reason to eliminate that house and move on. So when you first walk in the door and they, you typically they walk towards the kitchen or they walk towards the master bedroom or maybe the back door to go outside. That's kind of the critical. You need to wow them when they first come in the door with natural light, their senses. I mean, even sometimes as realtors, we put very mildly scented candles or cookies or sound. You want to create that emotional feeling and you want to differentiate your house in a positive way from your competition. So if you can just have one or two items, it doesn't have to be every bathroom in the house, but if you can have a couple things that exceed their expectations, you know, at certain price points, people have certain expectations. And when they find something, whether it's a, a really neat, expensive tile 
or maybe some steel doors along or a sliding door unit along the back wall of the house or something that is nicer than what they expected and nicer than what they've experienced at some of the other spec homes. Then all of a sudden they're like, hey, do you remember the house with the awesome sliding doors? They've anchored in their psychology some positive thing with that house and they keep referring back to the house that had either the amazing master bathroom, the super awesome kitchen setup or whatever it is. So you always want to think through if I were a buyer, what's going to make this house stand out? And if, if it's the price, you're way behind the eight ball. Well, how long did it take you to learn that? <laughs> well, I, I had, um, you know, I, I feel like I learned pretty quickly because in 2008, when I started flipping houses, I really needed money bad because the company I was working for, uh, uh, Sotheby Homes, went out of business and I actually needed to make money to pay the bills. And so when my first deal did not make that much money, I was like, I got to get this figured out. And I started bringing realtor friends and all sorts of people through the house that didn't do well. And they're like, oh, yeah. You used really crappy this, you went really cheap this, your painter sucks, you know, your flooring guy sucks, you know. I started slow, slowly, but by, by like the third house, my third house, I'd say was at the time was a home run. I made $60,000 profit on the third house that I did. And it, it made a huge difference to me. But that third house, I put better appliances in, you know, I did some stuff to really make it feel better and stand out more than just average. And um, it did well for a couple of years. I made pretty good money at the time flipping houses. And I started buying houses that were nicer and spending more money on them as making a better return. So just sort of a side note on this. Um, if someone was getting ready to go into flipping houses, what would be your advice besides maybe don't do it? Oh, gosh. I mean, my advice would be like, are you sure? Are you really sure? Because it's um, it's a that man, it can be great. Right. There's the problem is the competition is fierce and it's like anything else. It depends on how hard you want to work and what do you have realistic expectations? Because, I mean, I've got one of my really good friends. He actually owns a Homevestors franchise and he does pretty well. But man, that guy works hard. You know, I mean, he works really hard. A lot of his houses, he makes twenty or thirty thousand dollars on it. You know, and I mean, he gets in there and does some of the work himself, helps with some of the demo. And I mean, he's doing five or I mean, he makes good money. He's doing five or six homes at a time. But man, he works his deal off. There's very. I got out of the house flipping business because the margins started shrinking. You know, I was buying houses at foreclosure in 2008 for 60 cents on the dollar. And now people are paying 90 cents on the dollar for them, hoping that by the time they finish the market in the 60 days that it takes to fix it up or 90 days it takes to fix it up, the market will have appreciated more and they're going to get 10,000 more than they expected. It's it's not a uh, it's not a really fun game like what you see on TV. That's all I'm going to tell you. Okay. Well, well, most of what we see on TV isn't really real anyway, but okay. I will save that, save that for another podcast. So one, one final question, and I'm going to, this is for Matthew. So Matthew, you're up. 
Yeah, well, let's let's end this on a little bit more cheerful note than don't do it. But uh, would you care to share any stories uh, on anything you've seen people do to their house that just made you laugh or maybe even a remodel that made you scratch your head and wonder, why did they decide to do that? Oh, my gosh. I have seen some crazy stuff. <laughs> and, you know, uh, I've probably forgotten a lot of it probably on purpose. One thing that comes to mind, uh, there is this house and I mean, it was not a cheap house. It was probably like a million two. And uh, I think it was like in Willow Bend in Plano. And it was a house that had originally had a toilet and a bidet in the master bathroom. And I guess the people didn't want the bidet. So they pulled the bidet out and I guess they couldn't think of anything else to put in the spot other than a second toilet. So you went in a master bathroom and you had his and her toilets that was had no divider in between. So like basically someone, they could each sit on the toilet and hold each other's hand while they went to the bathroom. I mean, it was, I was like, what in the world? You know, it was just funny. Um, there's been, I mean, tons of crazy, I mean, crazy stuff where people just flipper houses where, you know, someone had uh, mounted, like someone had like obviously torn out like some sort of, than a hood and gone back and put like a microwave above the cooktop, but the microwave was like six feet up in the air. You know, I mean, it was like way, way high. Like you could never make it work. And it was like behind a full, it was actually behind it over the top of a range. So you had a full actual range, not just a cooktop and the microwave. And it was just terrible. And there's, but there's been, I have seen so many goofy things. And then like, yeah, just, just funny stuff you're like what in the world were these people thinking i like the i, I like that the microwave six feet off the ground that that i mean it would work for me i know for sure but uh, i'm pretty sure my wife who's probably a foot shorter than me would have a little bit of difficulty with that <laughs> oh yeah yeah like but you just have to laugh you know um the other some of the things like weird door that like someone will go in and put you know they'll have um They'll have a, you know, a set, they'll have like three sets of French doors across the back of the house and randomly like one of the sets of doors will be like six foot eight and the other two are eight feet tall. And you're like, what in the world? Like you get three sets of French doors in a row and you got one set that's six, eight and the other two are eight. Oh, you know, just like, just, I mean, some of the stuff's not like, uh, gosh, I, there was a house in Preston Hollow where it had low, um, the ceiling heights were eight feet tall. And in the family room, I guess they got credit. It was a pure and beam house. And in order to make the family room ceiling feel better, instead of like vaulting the family room ceiling up, they cut the pier and beam out of the family room and had the family room drop down to, to, to accommodate it. But then it, I mean, it, it turned out so bad because you had all these steps, like these steps going into it and like this drop off and then steps. There was like the family room to the patio was like a two foot. You had to like walk up two feet of stairs to get to the patio. That was, I mean, it was just so stupid. You know, it's like this house was like a million four. You're like, what in the world were you thinking? It was so bad. It was so bad. I just. Like, like if I thought about it, like there's so many times where I'm like, that is so bad. And then, then just like some of the decorations, I mean, 
and I mean, not always bad, but just funny. There was this house in, uh, in Devonshire that I showed. It was a The house was actually awesome. The property was awesome. It was like a mid-century modern house. Really cool. But like the front, the front formal living room had like dance floors and mirrors and stuff in it. Like, and there was like, I mean, like a stereo system and all. Like, it was obvious, like dance floor room, right? No furniture in it. And there was like a six foot tall statue of Jesus on, on like a, on a pallet, like caster wheels, like pallets. So literally like the homeowner could like dance with Jesus in their front formal living room, which like, and Hey, just, you know, I'm a religious person. I got nothing against dancing with Jesus. I just thought it was hilarious. It was really kind of uh, something I hadn't seen before. Um, I've seen houses that had a Kipps big boy statue on the roof of the house over like off of Crestline or something like that, or Valley View and Crestline, just, you know, like, I mean, a full size, they had taken it from a Kipps big boy restaurant, this boy, like this, like giant, like eight or nine foot tall, like boy holding a hamburger on a, on a tray, literally on top of their garage with guy wires holding it in place, you know, I'm just crazy stuff. Wow. Wow. You know, the neighbors had to love that. Oh my gosh. You know, you know, they just love it. <laughs> cool. Well, um, thank you for, for hanging out with us tonight and, and doing this with us. It's been certainly been interesting just from, from the perspective of, you know, you have such a diverse background because you haven't just, Oh, and, and maybe a quick question, just a, one last thing yeah. because I keep, keeps going through my head. Why in an economic downturn, downturn does it seem like they're suddenly everyone's becoming a realtor oh well don't you know that realtors get paid a whole bunch of money for doing absolutely nothing at least that's what everybody thinks and everybody thinks hey look all i you know the worst thing that the biggest disservice that our government has done to the real estate community is making it so easy to get a real estate license if you have a high school diploma you can go to some like champion school of real estate and like three weeks later, you can be a licensed realtor. So, I mean, like we're talking most people, this is the single, the largest single investment they'll ever make in their life. Obviously that's not true with everybody, but in general, this is the largest single purchase that they'll ever make. And the fact that someone can spend three weeks in school and then like represent that person and give them advice on the single largest purchase they ever make is insane. So I really wish the barriers to entry were higher, but it's really easy and really cheap to become a realtor. And people think, oh man, if I just have one friend a month buy a $500,000 house, I'll make $15,000 a month. And this is easy money. It, it's kind of, it's kind of it, it makes me laugh on a regular basis. Okay. Well, I was kind of wondering about that because... Yeah, it's after 2008, it was like suddenly all these realtors and like, you don't I just uh, uh, it, was, it was driving me crazy to a point. So I thought, you know, while I had you, I would ask the question. Can I say one more thing on that? Sure. The, it, the other thing that I really wish they would require and to real estate school, all they teach you about is how not to get sued. Right. I mean, like basically 90 percent of your real estate classes are. Don't steal money and don't don't get sued. 
you know, and oh, by the way, here's how to fill out a contract, maybe. They don't teach you anything about construction. They don't teach you anything about architecture. Like how in the world is it possible? And, and, and I'm just telling you, this is from my experience, 90% of the realtors out there don't really know much about houses. I mean, they know, they're like, hey, this is the kitchen. Wow, shocker, I couldn't figure that out. And over here, we have the master bathroom. Oh my goodness, I thought that was the laundry room. I'm so glad you were here. I never would have figured that out on my own. You know, it's like, come on, really? I mean, they have no clue about architecture. I mean, they, they have no clue about how these houses are built. I mean, most of them don't really understand the difference between a slab foundation and a pure and beam foundation, much less any kind of suspended slab foundation or any of the, any of the void box stuff. Or I mean, just all the different stuff that's out there. They may have heard of foam insulation, but they don't even know what full encapsulation means. They don't, they don't know anything about this stuff, yet they're going around as if they know like what they should buy or what they should do. And it's um, it really, if there's anything that I could change about our industry, it'd be to require construction classes and like an architectural history or some sort of knowledge of architecture class. You should not, like the thought of not knowing anything about the product you're selling boggles my mind. Yeah, well, but you know, then, then it would take longer than three weeks and, and ain't nobody got time for that. I know, right? God forbid you have to spend more than three weeks in class to be able to go make commissions that are large. You know, um, it's it's crazy. I feel for I feel for architects and builders out there that have to deal with all the agents that don't know a thing about construction or architecture, but still try to act like they do. Yeah, I, I yeah, <laughs> I, I'm going to keep my nose out of that. Okay. Um, Matthew- Matthew, do you have anything else? That's it for me. Okay. Well, uh, as usual, guys, thank you for listening. And, of course, if you want to find me, it's at Spotted Dog Arch on most of the social media or or SpottedDogArchitecture.com if you want to find the website. Hunter, how do people get in touch with you? Uh, Well, you guys can go to DallasHomesForSale.com, and all my information is there. You can also find me at hunterdane.com. The last name is spelled D-E-H-N. Um, and, uh, or find me, you Google me, Hunter Dane, you'll find me. And of course, Matthew, we know where you are, right? Yes, I'm at ArchGeekMatt on Twitter. Well, guys, thanks thanks for tuning in, and we will be, we will be back next week. Ugh, obviously having a issues talking, so it's time to say goodnight. So... Um, Talk to you soon and hope you have a good weekend. Bye. Bye. Bye, guys. 